My name's AJ. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace. It's so good to be with you all. I hope you are having a great Sunday here in the house of the Lord. It is a big Sunday for us. Um, It's our last Sunday uh, with Bishop Brett Fuller, uh, officially titled our senior pastor, our lead pastor. Um, And so next week will be a special moment for us all. It's got me thinking about legacy. It's got me thinking about the story that we're writing as a church. It's got me thinking about the last 40 years and the next 40 to come. And so we're going to talk about that today. The title of the message is The Stories We Tell and the legacies that we leave. We're going to be in the 103rd Psalm this morning. So if you want to turn with me there, we'll read four verses together. This is Psalm 103. We're going to read verses 15 through 19. This is the word of the Lord. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we're inviting you into this space to be present among us to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend what it is that you are saying to us. And even as we reflect on the exhortation, God, I come as a man with unclean lips and I ask you to purify the words that come out of me today, that it would be your word from heaven to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Say amen. 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 Uh, So back in 2016, I became unashamedly completely, fully, and totally obsessed with the musical Hamilton. Any shout out from anybody in the house? Okay, I see a couple of us. Okay, praise God. Yes, my people. I thought y'all love the Princess Bride and Hamilton. We can be family now. That's all I needed. Uh, I, some of you guys haven't been around Grace this long, but there was a season a couple years ago before we had this building that we're in now, we met in the, in the kid builders building and where the kid builders have their big sanctuary. That was our whole church sanctuary. And it was back in that season. I don't know how it happened still to this day. I'm racking my brain trying to figure it out, but somehow my sister-in-law tricked me into helping her write like plays and shows for the church. I'm talking like costumes, like makeup, like sets. I don't know what we were doing. I trust God used it. It was a weird season of my life. It was a weird season for many of us. But we did these shows back then. They started just for the kids, and then we kind of kept doing them and doing them. And then somehow that turned into um, asking me and even Pastor Tellus to do what many people have called spoken word poetry. I wouldn't call it that because I don't know what it is. We just were asked to do a thing. And so we come and we do that. And then they kept asking us to do it. So you may have seen some of those at Easter's or Christmases in the past, or if you came to the worship conference and, and there's just, you know, creative endeavors, you're trying to be faithful and serve wherever they, wherever they ask you. And then I come across Lin-Manuel Miranda writing in Hamilton. And I just like, wanted to quit at all. Like the level of genius that I'm talking about this man writes with just completely blew my mind. I'm both like in awe at the density of the lyrics, the complexity and perfection of the music, the heart and the soul of the whole thing. I'm both jamming and crying at the same time. I'm wanting to be, it's just, it was, it was heaven for me. I'll just be honest. 
I got the whole soundtrack memorized. We listened to it nonstop. Uh, uh, I used this message as a great excuse to have to get back into the album at my house. So I was just telling Michelle, I got to do some sermon prep. So we're going to listen to Hamilton while we're, while we're cooking all the time. She got me this book about the musical. Uh, that's actually a really cool book. Um, you know, has behind the scenes photos, stories, has all the lyrics and all of that. And one of the things I learned about this musical is that one of the working titles uh, before it was Hamilton, before it was on Broadway, and one of the main themes of the song, it also serves as the title of the last song in the soundtrack, um, was Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story. It's the idea that you have no control over who lives and who dies and who tells your story. It's going to happen one way or another. All you can do is write the best story you have with the time that you've got while you're here. It asks questions about legacy, destiny, fate. There's a great line in the musical. Hamilton says, what is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. Even that, just the lyrically, it's gorgeous. And it's got me thinking. I don't know if you think much about legacy. I'm thinking a lot about legacy. I have three little boys. Uh, they were just here at first service. And, and you know, they're going to carry on my family name. They're going to be the best representation in the earth of what I and my wife were as parents. We're going to write on their lives every single day until we send them off into the world. And they will be a living testimony to what we did or didn't do. And by God's grace, he will redeem all that we're not. It's got me thinking about the legacy. It got me thinking about the story that I'm writing with my life. Uh, Certainly we're in this transitional moment as a church and I'm looking back at 40 years of hard ministry labor back before any of this existed, back before when every Sunday was a different location and Pastor Brett and then Pastor Mark, they were just trying to figure it out day by day. And, And these amazing men and women and leaders have labored and toiled and sown and reaped and faithfully served, and then they've gift-wrapped it, and they're going to they're give it as an inheritance. And that's got me humbled, filled with gratitude, filled with awe. It got me feeling like, man, what is the story I'm going to leave? And for us, what's the story that we're going to write with our lives as a church? Today is about legacy. It's about the stories that we tell with our lives. You know, David writes this psalm, the 103rd psalm. It's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. It's a song of of worship to God for who he is and for what he's done. In the psalm, David extols the character of God. He reflects on God's love for his people. He compares the brevity of human life with with the everlasting love of God. And he ends the psalm the way he starts it, with words of blessing and praise and worship to God. And this is from David who went through a lot in his life with God. David's got a story to tell. And in fact, there's books of the Bible that exist just to tell his story and all that we can learn and see from God's hand on his life. David's been through a lot with God and David knows at this season of his life, I can't author the outcomes. In my own strength, I can't make things happen that God didn't intend to happen. I can't, I can't tell you who's going to live, who's going to die. I can't tell you what's going to happen next. I can't author my story, but I sure can worship and bless the one who does. And he writes this psalm to help us remember and to reflect on the goodness and the presence and the graciousness of our God and how faithful he is. It's not about how faithful we are. When you're looking back 
over this psalm and over the story that you're writing with your life, I think there's three things we need to hold in tension as we do that. Three truths that I think are really important for us to grasp because they will define and shape the way we live our lives today and into the future. So the three things we're going to talk about today are the temporary futility of life. We're going to talk about the everlasting love of God. And we're going to talk about the strength of a firm foundation. David starts this, well, he doesn't start it, but the passage that we read, it's uh, in the middle towards the end of this psalm. He writes these words. Let me read them again. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. We have these tulips in our yard at our house. They're beautiful. We didn't plant them. The previous owners planted them. Um, and my wife and I, I don't know if you guys have favorite seasons. We definitely just have a least favorite season. Um, our, our least favorite season is winter and, uh, we just can't wait for winter to end. And so every early spring, when these little green buds begin to poke up through the dirt, like we are just like, there is a God who loves us. Bless the Lord. He is greatly to be praised. <laughs> like it's a fresh reminder of the hope of spring and quite frankly, the end of winter. The long, dark winter is over. Praise God. There's new life. And the tulips are some of the first things that spring up. You can see them here. Um, they're gorgeous. They're in our front yard on our trees and all down the side of our house in all different colors, purples and yellows and peaches and whites and reds and pinks. Um, there's my son crashing his bike into his brother, um, you know, because why not? And we love them. They fill us with hope. They're, they're, you know, they, I'm, not, I'm not even overstating it. We hate winter, and especially when we have little boys. We want to get outside and be playing and riding our bikes. And so these tulips represent to us something significant about the changing of the seasons and the hope and the new life that we have in God. But if you just wait a few days, maybe a couple weeks, those tulips, they look like this. Isn't that so sad? <laughs> Like, I don't even want to look at it. It's so depressed. That's what my yard looks like now. It's like, there they are. They're just gone. They're just gone. As much as these tulips for us represent the hope of new life and the beauty of God's creation and all that is good in the springtime, they also serve as a stark reminder of the brevity and the fragility of life. That's the truth that David is anchoring us in in this psalm. Man's life is like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. His life is beautiful. His life is specifically designed and uniquely crafted by God. It's placed in the earth to testify to the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. And even lives that seem to be dead, they, there's a resurrection that happens in, a, in our lives that testify to the resurrection of God's grace and his power on our lives through Jesus to bring a beautiful thing out of nothing. And we see new life come all the time in these babies and we all have some type of emotional response to children and to babies and they testify to the beauty of God, the power of God, the creative life-giving presence of God. A man flourishes like a flower in the field. And the wind comes, and the petals fade, and it was like he was never there. This is the temporary futility of life. It's natural. It's normal. It's not good or bad. It's what it is. It's taught me three things as I've prepared this message and thought through it. 
three things that I think we need to hold in tension as well. I think the first thing it teaches me that your season will change. Your season will change. The pain is not permanent, but neither is the success. Seasons come and seasons go. That's, that's what a season does. You understand? Seasons change. It's not will a season change. It's a season. A season will change. That's what happens. And, and I know that if you're in a difficult season, a season of pain, a season of, of pressure, of frustration, a season of not being where you've maybe wanted to be or not sure where you're supposed to go or life is just hard and difficult, it can be hard to hear this and get a lot of hope out of it. And I get that. You're talking to a guy who's had multiple prophetic words spoken over him that were like, AJ, I, I just, God is telling me you're just in a desert season. You're in a dry season. And it's like you're looking for water, but there's none to be found. Thanks. <laughs> Keep it to yourself next time. I had one prophetic word. It was like, AJ, I see you in a, like a long, dark tunnel. It's like you're going through this tunnel and you're walking and it's dark. I mean, is there a light at the end of it? Like, do you have any kind of redemptive benefit on this for me? And I leave going like, oh, yay, I feel worse now. Thank you. You've confirmed that it's as bad as I thought it would be. And I know for a lot of us, you feel like I'm, that's the season I'm in, though. And all the encouraging words, all the faith, all the, all the singing, all that, it just, but it's still hard. But the season will change. That's what a season does. Seasons aren't permanent. They come and they go. Solomon describes our life in the book of Ecclesiastes as a mist or as a vapor. It's the Hebrew word hevel. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible because it means something we can't really even describe. So we use words like mist or vapor. It's, it's here today. It's, it's gone tomorrow. And if you've ever stepped out into a morning fog, a thick, heavy fog, and you've walked through it, it's like the, the mist, it's everywhere. Like you can't escape it. You can't grab it. You can't move it. You can't do anything to it. All you can do is see it all around you. And for many of us, when we're in a difficult season of life, that's what it feels like. It's like this mist, this heaviness is everywhere. We can't get through it. We can't cause it to come. We can't cause it to go. It's just there. But how many of you know as quickly as a fog settles in, the fog rises and lifts? That's what fog does. It comes and it goes. Your seasons, they come and they go. For some of us, you're in, a, you're in a good place, actually. You're doing well. We had a couple that we served with back in 2020 during the, the peak of the pandemic, the start of it. And, you know, we're making phone calls and checking in with people, making sure they're doing okay, seeing how we can pray for them. And, and they were so funny because they were like, no, we're good. Like, we're okay. I'm like, oh, no, you know, I, I, you know full of faith, got it, yeah, praise God. No, but tell me, like, really, like, how, like, well, we worked at home before this started. We're working at home now. Business is good. Like, kids are great, you know, da, da, da. And it's, you know, sometimes you feel like, can, can I say that? Can I say that I'm like really good? Like, I, I don't really, like life is okay. <laughs> is that okay to say? And I think it's okay. I think it's great. I think the, the challenge is some of us go like when we step into a season where things start to go our way, or maybe for some of us, it's like, it's not a season. It's just a moment. There are moments I get those like positive feelings and you go like, oh, thank God. Finally, it's the way it should be. Finally, God, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And we put too much faith in a circumstance, in a situation, because that wind comes, and that season changes too. It's not a threat. It's just the truth of life. It's just accurately diagnosing the coming and the going of seasons. Your season will change. 
Our job is to weather the storm and to remember and to root ourselves in the truth of Scripture that this too shall pass. I don't put my faith in the outcome of my circumstance. I put it in the steadfast love of my Lord. It also teaches me, this is a fun one. I hope you can receive this with grace because I'm just going to say it the way that's impactful to me. Temporary futility of life teaches me that your season will change. It also teaches me that you're not that important. I don't know if that encourages you or not. I wrote it in my notes as I'm not in th- that important. So if that makes you feel better, I'm not that important. Uh, if you're like me, I have that feeling that like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. And if I drop the ball, it's all going to fall apart. I put a lot of pressure on myself to do and to be that which I feel like I have to be. Um, and it's helpful for me to be reminded sometimes that I'm really not that important. That if anything, the purposes of God are not limited to me. They're limited by me. And more often than not, I stand in the way of God doing what he's trying to do. Here's the thing. I'm going to do everything I can to fulfill every promise of God that is on my life. I'm going to work as hard as, as anybody to make sure that when I'm done, there's no unleft potential within me. That everything God promised or spoke or said, every vision he placed in my heart, every, every purpose that he has called me to, everything that is within me, when I am done, I'm going to do everything I can to achieve every last bit of that. I believe I'm called to build something great for God, and I will do just that. And at the end of my life, and at the end of my ministry, if I'm able to walk faithfully enough and humbly enough, empowered by the Spirit of God long enough to see every promise of God be fulfilled in my lifetime and everything within me drawn out of me into creation, I will still be a blip on the radar of history. I'm not that important. How many unnamed millionaires are there? How many unnamed billionaires are there? Yeah, we know Musk and Gates and Bezos, but there's more. How many business leaders, great philanthropists, people who have achieved so much in the course of history, great generals and great leaders that we don't even remember their names? There are so many great champions, gold medalists, world champions, record setters. We couldn't tell you the first thing about them. These are people who have reached the pinnacle of achievement in their field. And for most of us, they're a blip on the radar of history. We're just not that important. If I can do, if I can look back and just diagnose anything that you could call successful that I've done with my life, whether it's a message, I've preached a decision, I've made a, a, a project we've completed, an event that we've held. If I look back and if I'm honest with you, every one of those things that we might call a success is just coded in the grace and the mercy of a God who redeems my lack and my incompetence. He does everything good in spite of me, not because of me. I am not that important. The purposes of God are not limited to me. More often, they're limited by me. And so I do what John says in John 3.30. I'm trying to live my life according to the principle that he must increase and I must decrease. I'm not trying to be seen and to be known by you. I want Christ to be seen in me and for him to be known by you. I'm not as important as I think I am. 
But I am important to God. I am important to God. Life is temporary. It's futile. Our seasons come. Our seasons go. We try to make an impact, but ultimately, God's will is going to be done in the course of, course of our lives. And although you might not be as important as you think you are, you absolutely are important to God. And David anchors us in this truth in this psalm. But this is the same David that wrote Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, David writes these words. He says, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place in the skies, what is man that you are mindful of me? David then goes on to talk about the authority and the purpose that man has on the earth. And that tells me that although my life is temporary, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, I am like grass. The temptation to, can be to go, yeah, none of it matters. Why try? And that's just, I'll just tell you, that's the voice of the enemy distracting you out of your purpose. There's a healthy respect you have for the eternality of God in the temporariness of your life that goes, I can humble myself before an almighty God and recognize I'm not the greatest thing since sliced bread. But God is mindful of you and God cares for you. And that's because there are purposes within you that matter to God. There are things he has called you to that do deeply matter to him. So I've thought about this and I've wrestled with this tension between how do I walk in a healthy way? Because that's a difficult, I mean, I'm kind of giving you guys like a very narrow line to walk. Like, don't be proud of yourself, but be proud of yourself. You don't matter. I mean, you matter a lot. <laughs> like, help me here. <laughs> so as I've thought about it and I've looked at my life and I go like, what, what are the areas where, where I can tell what I do has an eternal impact and, and really matters to God? And one, it jumped right to the front of my mind. And it's, it's the metaphor God uses to describe himself very often in scripture. It's that of a father. I can see immediately the impact my care or my neglect has on my wife and my children. That when I stop what I'm doing and slow down and sit with my boys and talk to them and I, and I take a knee to look at them eye to eye and I listen to them and I care for them, I can see things spring to life in them. And when I'm dismissive of them because I'm distracted or I correct them a little bit too loudly, I can see them shrink back. But by the grace of God, I trust he will redeem every moment. But there's something about the way we are as fathers. And I'm not just saying fathers for men only. This is true of mothers and this is true of every believer in the body of Christ because we are an integrated body that's connected to each other. We are the family of God. So if you don't have the family outside to go like, well, I'm single, I don't have kids, I'm not going to have kids, this doesn't matter to me. It does, it does, because all of us are writing on each other's lives all the time. But the family holds a special place in God's heart because the family is the vehicle by which we can best express and understand everlasting love. There's nothing my children can do that will stop me from loving them. Because my love for them is not a feeling I feel towards them. It's a choice I've made about them based on who they are in me. As my son, I'm not turning my back on him, even if he turns his back on me. That's, that's my son. My love for him is a decision I make every day, day after day, year after year. 
They will never be outside of my love. God gives us the family to help us understand his everlasting and eternal love. This is the second thing. We can clap for God. God is great. It's the second thing David begins to unpack for us in this passage that we read. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. In his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The thing about eternity is that eternity is really hard to comprehend. We are finite beings. And so for us to comprehend infinity, which is by definition not finite, requires us to be something we cannot be. We, time is a linear for us. So we can't really wrap our minds around something that's extra linear. And um, I was racking my brain for illustrations to try to bring this to life for us so that we could have a better perspective. And I'll just be honest, I couldn't come up with anything, so I Googled it. Um, just if you want insight into how sometimes we prep. Um, eternity illustrations. Like, let's see. Um, and I did find one that I think is pretty good, but it's incomplete. Um, as an illustration, I could do, imagine I had a rope that stretches all the way across the stage and down the hallway. I'm sorry I didn't bring a rope today, but I wasn't going to buy a rope for an illustration I'm not going to do, even though I'm kind of going to do it. Um, so I've got a rope, a white rope. It stretches all the way down the hall, and I just tell you, this rope, it goes on forever. It goes around the world. It just keeps going. You never reach the end of it. And I hold up before you just the first inch of the rope, and it's, co just, it's colored red, right? It's marked off there. And I go, um, this part is your life. And it's the beginning of it, it's the end of it. And that is eternity. And we worry so much every day about the milestones we need to hit by here, the money we need to have by here, the places we need to be by here, so we can really enjoy this little bit at the end. And we forget about that. And we obsess about this. But this impacts all of that. I know it's a good illustration, right? Yeah. It's a Francis Chan illustration. First service, the way I set it up, it made it sound like Francis Chan was bad. I like Francis Chan. It's a good illustration, so I'll give him credit for it. My only problem with it is this. Time does not start with you. There's an eternity before you. And there's an eternity after you. And the word of the Lord is that his steadfast love goes from everlasting to everlasting. You are just here. Which means that the things that move our hearts and the things that stress us out and the things that we obsess over and worry about and wring our hands over, God doesn't. Because he is from everlasting to everlasting. And his eternal perspective is driven by an eternal love. The love of the Lord is from everlasting. And it goes to everlasting. Which means he's trustworthy because he can see the end from the beginning. This is the, this is the experienced parent counseling the first time parent. And going like, it's okay. Your baby's going to be fine. Like, don't, we've been through it. We've seen it. 
I promise you they will get teeth. Just keep, just keep waiting. It's going to be okay. It's okay. They usually don't read until they're a couple years older. He's only eight months, so just take a breath. It's going to be all right. Okay. I know he doesn't have a basketball scholarship yet. He's only six. Just breathe in, breathe out. It's okay. They're going, oh my goodness, your teenager talked back to you. I know. It happens. Relax. It's okay. They're making terrible decisions. I, I know. They're driven hormonally. They have no idea what they're doing. Teenage boys are literally out of their minds. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. You can breathe deep. It's normal. It's natural. They have perspective. They have wisdom. I'm the youngest of four boys in my family. My dad tells a story about what it's like raising four children. He says, um, he says when you have four kids, the first kid, the first child, when they fall, you catch them before they hit the ground because you're always watching. You're always present. You're always on top of it. They fall, you catch them, baby's fine. So the second kid, when they fall, they usually hit the ground once, maybe bounce once, and then you're there. Then you got them. It's okay. You okay, buddy? Okay. It's okay. All right. All right. It's all right. The third kid, they say he bounces. He kind of rolls a little bit. Then you kind of like, gotta, you go, you set him. Is it okay? But you're, you're okay, buddy. That's fine. He said the fourth kid, when the fourth kid falls, nobody knows. Nobody knows where the fourth kid is. Nobody cares. We're all too busy. I'm glad you're all laughing. I'm the fourth born son. I'm like, Dad, I don't like that joke, man. <laughs> but how can a father be unconcerned when their child falls? It's because a father has seen a child fall time and time again and get back up. And the father knows that there's often a reason behind the fall. Sometimes that fall is intended to teach us a lesson. Maybe you shouldn't stand up on a rocking chair and pretend like you're surfing. Maybe you'll fly off and crack your head on the... That's my story. I learned that lesson. A father knows that his eternal, steadfast love for that child is not going to allow him to put that child in real danger. If my son runs towards the street, I'm not going to go watch him learn this lesson. <laughs> but if he falls off the couch or he and his brother get in a fight and they get bruised, what do I say? Yeah, that's going to happen. We need to learn. How can our heavenly father allow bad things to happen to us without always supernaturally inserting himself to make everything better? Which is what we ask him. Hey, it's hard. Please, God, save me. Change everything. Because the father knows that the fall is not going to destroy you. That sometimes we fall to learn we can get back up. Sometimes we fall to learn what we shouldn't be doing so we don't do it again. Sometimes we fall to learn something about ourselves and about the faithfulness of God. His steadfast love for us. Because the father's love is from everlasting to everlasting. And his eternal perspective is guided by an eternal love for you. He's not going to let you fall. And if he does, it's because he knows you can get back up. And he'll be there with you and for you. Steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to children's children. God almost always uses families to bring about his will and his purposes in scripture. And he can use the generations because he's not in a rush. He plays the long game. Sometimes I can feel like it's all on me, right? I've got to do it in this timing right now for me. And if I don't do it, who will? And I look back at scripture and I go, this is the God of Adam and Eve who allowed sin to enter into the world 
And God says to Eve, it is through your, through your family line. It's through the course of your family over generations that I will conquer sin and death in this world. Not with Eve, but through her family line. Through the line of humanity. God can use the generations. This is the God of Abraham, whose name Abram meant blessed father. When he changed his name to Abraham, it meant father of many nations. This is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Jacob's 12 sons and one of those sons, Judah, and, and his descendants through David. And finally, we get to Jesus at some point over in the New Testament. God is not in a rush. God uses family lines because families have a special place in the heart of God. Familial inheritance is really important to God. That was the design from the start. That fathers and mothers would pass things down from them to their children and to their children and to their children's children. This is the good design of our good God. The, the problem with that, though, is that the son can only inherit what the father has to give. So I'm going to write in my will that my sons are going to get a house in the Hamptons. But since I don't have a house in the Hamptons, they're not getting jack. <laughs> I can only give what I've got. I can only give them what I've got. If you want, and I think for most parents, for most of us, we want God to be faithful to our children. We want them to live a, a good life and to love God and to love God's people. And we want that for them. Not for me. I want that for them. But how will your son or your daughter inherit that which you don't have? How can God bless the son if the father curses God? And maybe it's not cursing God. Maybe it's not like, you know, holding a fist to God. But maybe it's that indifference and general disobedience, that mindset that says, that says God, I want salvation. I want blessing. I want favor so that I can do whatever I want with it. It's the mindset that says, God, this is how this works. You bless me so I can have it my way. And while you're at it, bless my children and all that I put my hands to. You can only pass on that which you've got. So if you've got generational sin patterns, brokenness in your family, if you've got mindsets that are, that are super unhealthy, that you've inherited from your parents in the environment that you've grown up with, you've got addictions that run the course of time through your family and down to you, if you've got a legacy of marital disunity and divorce, it becomes really hard to not give that as an inheritance unless you allow Christ to rewrite your story. The question is, what story are we writing with our lives? This is why for young people, for us, we, we, we try to layer in to people my age and young adults that, that your relational integrity now is so important. The decisions you're making today, they, they really do matter. It is hard to give a testimony of, of a holy marriage and a life without a lot of baggage and a lot of issues if, if we haven't lived that life. And so when we press into people, we say, you really shouldn't live together before you're married because you're writing a story that says God exists to serve me on my schedule when I want him to. And I'll do what I want with the rest of it. But my children will grow up to love and respect the Lord. You can only give what you've got. You can't give something that you don't have. Sons can only inherit that which the father has to give. 
one of the reasons I'm so excited about Grace Covenant now and into the future. And when I look at the last 40 and I look at the 40 that are going to come and however many God will give us after that, I'm full of faith because I see rightly ordered inheritance from fathers to sons. I'm not just talking about one fuller to another, although I think if you want to know if God will be faithful to the son, look at the faithfulness of the father. But I'm looking at Pastor Jim and Pastor Duke, Pastor Donnell, so many who have come before us, who have tilled the soil, Pastor Mark and Debbie Cog, so many who have labored faithfully and are passing to another generation the inheritance, that which they have built. You've heard Pastor Brett talk about it all the time. Most pastors at his age, having done this with his life, is going to coast for the next 20. Sit here, preach as Grandpa Brett, and just love the church. They'll love me. God will be great. But he's going, no, 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 no. That's my inheritance. All that I've gained, I'm giving. And I'm just... I just, man, I love that example. I love the testimony of that because that rewrites my story. And that makes me think, man, what, what will I get to give away one day? What is God doing in me that I'm going to get to distribute to somebody else? Um, last thought on this one. For a lot of us in the room, that idea of a great father or a great family line is not your story. You don't have that. And so you've heard me talk about rightful inheritance and a great father and, and the legacy and all of that. And you look at your story and you go, that's not me. And if that's not you. Paul talks about what it feels to look at people who seem to have it all together and who seem to be blessed by God and to compare himself to them and, and realize he falls so short. 1 Corinthians 15, read, read along with me here. Or just follow along. You have to read it out loud. Paul writes these words. Paul writes, I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul looks at the apostles as godly men and women who have spent their life walking with Jesus and now building the church. And Paul goes, I've not lived a life converting Christians. I've lived a life killing Christians. That which I do have is nothing compared to these amazing men and women who have, who have walked with Christ and knew him personally and have done so much good for the kingdom. I've done so much damage to the kingdom. Don't call me an apostle. I'm the least of them. I don't have anything anybody else has. But by the grace of God, I do have what I do have. And I am what I am. And I'll use everything that he's given me to become and to do everything that he's called me to do and to become. You might not have it all in your family life. You might not have everything you felt like God ought to have given you. You might look at Pastor Brett and go, could he adopt me? Could I just become one of his children? That would solve a lot of my problems. Could I have that? But by the grace of God, you do have what God did give you. And you can work as hard as anybody to rewrite the story of your family. And you can rewire the destiny of that which will come from you into the future. That is a promise God can give you. I look at myself and where we're going, and I feel like Paul. 
I'm not the most qualified to be here. I'm not the most strategic. I'm not the best of anything. I look at our pastors on this staff, and I often just sit back in awe of their gifting, their anointing, the revelation they get from Scripture, the way they care for people. And I go like, I am the least of these. I think I'm the last one on the roster. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I'll work harder than any of them to become what God has called me to become. So I'm not going to live a victim mentality or a scarcity mindset. I'm going to look at my identity in Christ, the faithfulness of Jesus in my life, and I'm going to say I'm going to walk a life associated with victory and righteousness and discipline because that is what God has called me to. He will write the rest of the story. That's true for each one of us. That's true for each one of us. Let me wrap up. This is our final point. Three things David teaches us. The temporary futility of life, the everlasting love of God, and the strength of of a firm foundation. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we have been created anew in Christ Jesus. We are God's, we are his masterpiece. We are his handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Good works that God prepared beforehand. Why is God mindful of us? Because in the eternity before we existed, he had purposed good works for us to walk in. In that which God establishes, he sustains. He makes provision for it. How does he do that? I want to take a moment and I just want to read the first half of this psalm. I picked up in verse 13. I want to read the first 14. So if you want to open your Bibles back up, I think it'll be on the screen too. You just read this, again, you don't have to read it out loud, but just as I read it, just look at these words and listen to the story that David is telling. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Does that sound to you like a neglectful and an absent father? Does that sound to you like a cold and distant God who does not care about you? That sounds to me like a God who is faithful to a thousand generations. That sounds to me like a God who cares deeply about the affairs of man. 
that sounds like a God who purposed things from the start of creation and is committed to seeing those things come to pass. Sounds like a God who when he sees us downcast, he comes and he lifts our head. Sounds like a God who when he sees us sick and hurting, he comes to heal our land. It sounds like a God who moves heaven and earth to rescue me. Like a God who cares about that which he established and is faithfully committed to seeing it come to pass. The love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. No matter where you find yourself, the love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. So if you're in a relationship, thinking about starting one, or maybe you're thinking about taking one to the next level, the question isn't, will this work out? If you're starting a business venture, thinking about changing jobs, looking at a career switch, the question isn't, will I be successful in it? If you've got decisions that you have to make in your life, you're not sure which way to go, you've got a couple choices, the question isn't, am I making the right decision? The question is not about what you are doing. The question is about what has God done? So we don't ask, am I doing the right thing? We ask, did God establish it? Because if he established it, he will sustain it. And if he established it, you can put your trust in it. And even though it looks like he uses less than perfect means, that's all he has available to him anyways. He is faithful to a thousand generations. And his faith will not fail you. His purposes will come to pass for you. So when Jesus, talking to his followers, asked them to consider what is your life built on. In my words, what story are you writing with the time that you have while you're here? He says, will you be like a wise man who when he hears my voice, he builds his life on my word and that is like a rock. Or will you be like a foolish man who hears my words and does not do them? Because that is a man who builds his life on the sand. And either way, the storm is going to come. The rain is going to fall and the wind is going to blow. David said, man is like a flower in the field flourishing for a moment, but the wind comes nonetheless. And when the wind comes, will you have been a wise man or a foolish man? Will you have built your life on the rock of Christ? Or will you have built it on your own ability, your own desire, your own wants and needs? Jesus says, do not be a fool. Build your life on the rock. My purposes will come to pass. The rain is going to come. The wind is going to blow. That is the course of life. But what story are you writing? Who's the author of it? Because we have the ability to recognize I can't author my own outcomes, but I can make a decision to trust the author and the perfecter of my faith. And I've seen the story I've written. Man, it's not good. But Jesus is called the perfecter of our faith. The author of it. The one who wrote it from everlasting and continues to write it to everlasting. When I look at the future, I'm confident because I'm not writing the story. God's purposes will prevail for us. We're not authoring it. 
we're yielded to the one who is and we're finding ourselves in him every single day of our lives. Everything that we do is temporary. It's like grass. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. The thing that's not is a steadfast love of the Lord and his faithfulness goes to children's children's children. And we are found in him and that which he establishes, I can be sure he will sustain it. So today we have the choice to put our faith in the one who can perfectly author our story for us. I encourage you to do just that. Let's pray. God, we love you. We are humbled and sit in awe of how great you are. Lord, be glorified today as we put our faith and our hope and our trust in you.